and welcome to the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams, editor of SHD Logistics. This episode, we have the brilliant Professor Richard Wilding with us. Richard is Professor of Supply Chain Strategy at Cranfield School of Management. He's also a non-executive director for Lidos UK. If you follow Professor Wilding, you may know that he recently debated the selfishness of stockpiling on Good Morning Britain. It was with the infamous Dr. Hilary Jones and journalist Angela Botolf, who had bought 150 cans of food at the peak of the stockpiling panic. Here's Richard winning his argument. I think it's worth thinking. There's also a really important thing that people, you know, they'll make a a decision. So, for example, we've had all this big fuss about uh, face masks. Yes. So what's actually happening, I'm talking to companies who work in for do-it-yourself companies, you know, Mm. do-it-yourself outfits. And what's happening is people are switching from medical masks and going and buying, say, industrial masks. Yes. Mm. Now, the problem with that is, is that for people to do their jobs... They need those masks. They need those masks because you have to um, look after the legislation. So then all of a sudden you'll find that people who are trying to do their job can't do their job because they can't get the personal protective equipment they need. So uh, I think think we just need to be, we just need to think that our decisions, our personal decisions can have sort of consequences which knock on across the supply chain because it's networks which are competing here. And said I've been buying a few extras since late January, bought for the family thought I was bonkers. I've noticed where I do my shopping, tin meatballs have skyrocketed in price. (laughs) (laughs) For this interview, Richard is wearing his Lidos UK hat. If you don't know Lidos UK, they're a science and technology operator, best known for their £6.7 billion logistics contract with the Ministry of Defence. Professor Wilding, a leader in supply chain technology thinking and research, plays a key role at Lidos UK, helping to drive technology decisions. In this episode, you'll hear Wilding talking about the future of warehousing, 3D printing, mini power stations, and the development of people. Whenever I speak to Professor Wilding, I'm always impressed by how good he is at breaking down complicated information. In this first clip, he uses gaming to explain the importance of AI in warehousing. I think one of the key things about it is going to be really some of the analytics which we're able to do. So if you think about artificial intelligence, what you're able to actually do with it is is you're able to basically take the knowledge and optimise it. But there are some environments where you can't be used. So it can be used very effectively in planning. And if you think about it, if you are able to turn to your system, your warehouse management system and say, you know, in very simple terms, here's the game that we're playing. And what we want you to do to win the game is to, you know, increase throughput. That will enable the artificial intelligence system to actually manipulate some of the key variables and give you indicators on the key variables to enable the winning of that game. However, if the game is, for example, to reduce cost to a minimum, what the artificial intelligence system is able to do is to then actually look at that and focus on that minimal cost side of things. So I think one of the key things about this is, you know, if we're thinking about machine learning, artificial intelligence, what we're trying to do with these things is generally they're working on sort of an optimization type approach. It might bring in various trade-offs, 
But what it's trying to do is to learn a particular way so it can win a game. That That's artificial intelligence in very simple terms, okay? But you've got to decide, you know, what is the thing? We as humans have to decide what is the thing that we're trying to win with at this particular point. So I think that it can be used in very different ways within the supply chain. Of course, it's also being used to some degree for forecasting some types of products. Sometimes artificial intelligence does not work for everything. and We must understand this. There are sometimes better ways of forecasting and planning than using a, you know, an artificial intelligence system or a machine learning system. You have to choose the right one. So you do need to get some people, you know, experts involved who can actually point you to the right type of technology to use in those environments. I think Richard's comment there about it being the human who decides what to win gives us an interesting glance at what it will mean to be a decision maker in warehouse operations in the future and actually how sophisticated these roles are becoming. He also talked to us about blockchain. Wilding says the first thing or the first block rather is encryption. He says the next block is a distributed ledger which gives us transparency of information. The final building block is agreed rules and protocols. He actually makes it sound quite simple and he suggests we think of it this way. We're about to rejoin the interview at the point where Professor Wilding is describing how we can apply blockchain to our operations. What we can actually start doing with blockchain within the supply chain is we can take multiple bits of information from the supply chain to create the various blocks or elements of it. And I think that that's what's quite interesting about this. So, for example, we're able to take information from a whole variety of different sources and put them into a block. So it could be even photographs. So, you know, if we're moving goods across Europe, you could have here is a case going onto a lorry. Here's a photograph of the lorry with the seal on the lorry. That lorry then moves to another location, which could be a virtual waybridge, actually, which is, you know, literally camera systems and various other things where as a lorry moves over it, it automatically sort of gets a weight, takes various photos and everything else. So you can look once again at the seals and see that those seals haven't changed. You might use a bit of machine learning to analyze the photographs as well within that. You might then have somebody else who is going to then take that and scan it. It might be different products moving around as well. So what you end up with is lots and lots of blocks of information. What's then really interesting is, is of course, it's all encrypted. So what you can then do if you want to is you can assign to people different keys for opening the doors, as it were so that they can look at some of the data within that blockchain. So a bit like, you know, if I go to Cranfield, I've got a building, and that has a master key for the whole building, right? But my corridor also has a master key just for the corridor, and then I've got a key for my, just my office, right? And so what you're able to then do is you say, for example, you might say to customs, you can have the key which will open everything up. However, for a particular supplier within the supply chain, you might have a key which can only open up, you know, two or three of the blocks to show you the information in two or three of those things. 
whereas the customer might have another key to open up other bits of information. However, there is a big however with this. What they're finding, for example, with Bitcoin and uh, various other blockchain technologies is that they use an incredible amount of um, energy. So in terms of sustainability, I do wonder whether we're going to be able to go forward with blockchain in its current format. However, the core principles, I do think we're going to be able to utilize and create transparency, which is auditable transparency, which everybody agrees on, which will then enable us to have smart contracts also being implemented within supply chain environments. It's interesting to hear that it uses a lot of energy. We often get feedback that these new automated systems and the forklift trucks are requiring much more energy than ever and the pressure that this puts on the operator or the grid. So would you say that was a barrier to implementing blockchain within your warehouse operation? I think that it could potentially become a barrier. It's the same with all robotics as well. If you're starting to think about the power that you need to actually push into particular facilities, that is increasing all the time. It's a little bit like internet bandwidth. You know, if you think about the internet bandwidth that we might have put into a facility at one time, it was probably quite small. You might have had a couple of ISDN lines or something like that. Now we're needing significant amounts of data flows. Just the same when it comes to energy. And this I do see as a bit of a challenge, because if you think about it, we have goals, particularly within the United Kingdom, on net zero 2050. 2050, you know, we're all sitting here in 2020, it's 30 years away. But we need major infrastructure projects in order to be able to achieve net zero by 2050. So, for example, have we got enough carbon neutral power coming into the UK and so on and so forth. And this will create a bit of a challenge. And that's also meaning that we're having to think very differently about the location of facilities and so on and so forth. Because if you think about it, if you want to have a net zero supply chain, ultimately we will need to use rail and we might have to use electric vehicles, electric lorries, for example. Problem is, is that you can't have electric lorries doing very long trunking. Really, you're going to have to use rail for journeys, for example, in the UK over, I don't know, maybe 100 miles. That will then go to depots or warehouses where you may then have to use sort of electric vehicles to go out and actually deliver to this network of smaller warehouse facilities and so on and so forth. And then we might have to use autonomous or electric vehicles to go out from there as well. Of course, there's different technologies. It might not just all be based on electric, but even if you're looking at hydrogen fuel cell technology, ultimately that's just creating electricity. It's just a neat way of making electricity to run particular vehicles on. So I do believe that, you know, if we're going to achieve this goal of sustainability within the supply chain, we are going to have to radically think about how we use energy. And blockchain could just be the sort of the feather on the camel's back, which causes it to collapse if we're not careful, if we're using too much energy through that particular thing. But there are going to be challenges. And hopefully this sort of highlights the fact that There's a lot of connections which are required and a lot of thought needs to be thought about in terms of the infrastructure we need to be able to make some of these technologies and things work really well. Transparency is important to most operators 
and it sounds like blockchain can enable it. I'm glad Wilding didn't withhold his thoughts though around energy consumption. Access to energy is something which comes up quite a bit at the moment, so I can see how this could create a bit of a barrier. Richard, you've talked a little bit about future infrastructure around warehousing. This is quite a big question, but I want to ask you, what does the future warehouse look like? What type of technology must a warehouse have in 2030? Well, I think in 2030, some of the things which are really going to be needed for warehouses is Probably very strong foundations. You know, that's always one of those rules on warehouses. I know lots of warehouses. We're going to need very strong foundations, but also we're probably going to need smaller warehouses. They're going to have to be well connected and that's going to probably involve rails. So that's going to also create some interesting challenges. The amount of power going into these warehouses, we've got a sort of future proof for that, because if we're trying to run electric vehicle fleets and everything else, if you think about the amount of power which might be required to actually go into those facilities, that might be an awful lot of power going in there. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that Rolls-Royce are talking about very small footprint nuclear power stations. Who knows in the future, maybe we'll actually have these very small nuclear power stations actually positions at warehouses. Now, at the moment, you might say, hey, that's a massive security concern. And it might be. But, you know, we've got to explore all sorts of different opportunities because I think what we're going to find is increased automation at those particular facilities. We might be having to think about, you know, the whole issue of charging electric vehicles. And, you know, as we're already known, just with electric cars, they pull an awful lot of power to get them charged within reasonable lead times. Of course, then if you've got all this automated autonomous equipment within the warehouse as well, which is, you know, running on battery, we're going to need to be able to charge those elements as well. So I think we're going to see some big changes going in, but it's going to be really those utilities which are feeding into the facility, which could be make or break for some facilities. So we need to start planning to get that capacity in now and building it in so that there's probably some redundancy in 2020, but thinking ahead to 2030. Thinking ahead, Richard. What disruptive technologies are around the corner that perhaps I don't know about all my listeners, but you do? There is disruption occurring in different places. If you go back to those building blocks that we spoke about, what you're finding is, is elements of those building blocks are becoming disruptive and some companies are focusing very much on them. So, for example, once we actually get autonomous vehicles really being able to move on the motorways, for example, or in other environments, that could mean that we can have different business models. And I think it's interesting to think in terms of disruptive technology around the way that you develop a supply chain strategy. So if you think that at the end of the day, the supply chain strategy is all about creating value for the customer. So you have the competitive strategy for the business You then have the supply chain strategy, which is really saying, okay, competitive strategy, you're saying this is how we're going to create value. You then have the supply chain strategy, which says how we're going to deliver that value. 
And in simple terms, there's four key things you need to consider. You need to consider your supply chain process design, the infrastructure and equipment design, the information systems design, and finally the people and the organization design. So when we think about a disruptive technology, if all of a sudden I go and insert into a warehouse an additive manufacturing or 3D printing facility, so I no longer need to actually have all that racking because I can just make within a very short lead time the items I need, what that will do is that will disrupt the way the supply chain works because it'll mean we can create value for customers in different ways. We will be able to change our processes Maybe the network, the infrastructure will be changed. The information systems requirements are going to change, but also the people requirements. And that has a big impact then on the skills of the people and the types of jobs that people are doing. So there'll be a new skill set required to actually operate in that environment. So if we're looking at sort of disruption, it might be that something which is out there at the moment is just plugged into a supply chain in a slightly different way. And all of a sudden that just creates a very big change in terms of what people are actually doing. I guess to some degree you could say what has actually happened during the pandemic has created a disruption. There is no doubt about that. As I said, in the new normal, you know, remote working, being able to manage things remotely, more automation and so on and so forth is going to really change the way that we actually work as individuals, as society, as well as, you know, within actual physical facilities. Richard, in the past, we've spoken about the new role of potentially data scientists within a warehouse environment. And you've just mentioned new roles that might be creative around 3D technology. What are the new jobs in warehousing in the future? It's going to be around, for example, data analytics, there's no doubt about that, but also it'll be around the robotic side of things. There's going to be a whole raft of different things required, you know, specialists in battery technology, for example. So what we're going to find is the nature of the people we might actually have at the warehousing facility will start to very much change and their skill sets will change because their roles within that facility are going to change. So, for example, if we have a facility which has no people actually just going and picking things and moving them and so on and so forth, and everything is sort of automated, the people will then be having to control that facility, maintain that facility. And it's going to take things from a, you know, a different level of maintenance, as it were, just to think about, you know, keeping a facility that like that, you're going to find really your, um, you know, maintenance engineers are probably going to be sort of software engineers who are trying to actually work with that. And then you're going to have people who are specialists in managing, you know, electromechanical systems and so on and so forth. Now, we do have those people out there already, but I would think that we're going to need more and more of that type of skill set to be able to operate, you know, within this environment. And also then if we take it from the particular perspective that we're going to have high levels of integration, what people are going to start doing is, is managing these as a network rather than as individual entities. And so, you know, this is already happening to some degree, but, you know, where they've got excess capacity in one location, they can start utilizing that capacity. And, you know, you might get delivery occurring in a far more network based way. 
So that becomes quite important as we start to think about that, that in a way people are going to realise we're more within a complex adaptive system. And so therefore some of these connections become far for, you need to think very differently about the way that we work. It may surprise you that we've got this far into our story and we haven't even mentioned COVID-19. In this next clip, Professor Wilding talks about how the pandemic has forced people to think differently. Yes, there is no doubt that this pandemic has been totally devastating to many organisations. Many of them have also said, you know, for every cloud, there's also a silver lining. And it has forced them to think very differently about things. And they can see that, you know, some of the things that they were doing in the past just created no value at all. And now, you know, in this new world, they're saying, well, we don't need to do that anymore. We need to understand more about the fundamentals of what our customers want. And therefore, we'll start creating supply chains which really do have a focused service with sort of a laser light onto what the customers really want at a particular time. And let's just focus on those elements rather than doing other things. Richard, what role will technology play in the aftermath of the UK lockdown? I think we're already seeing that technology is having a significant impact. I think it's worth actually just reflecting to before the lockdown and before this pandemic actually hit us. So if we just go back and reflect on some of the big trends which were happening in December 2019, the big thing that we were actually talking about were the changes in the industry caused by supply chain 4.0. So these were sort of pressures which were taking industry 4.0 and then being rolled out across the supply chain. So if we look at the nine building blocks of those, there's these nine building blocks, and these are systems integration, big data and analytics, simulation and virtualization, the Internet of Things, the cloud, cybersecurity, autonomous systems, augmented reality and additive manufacturing. Now, what we were already finding was, was that within logistics and supply chains, elements of these were being taken and combined. So, for example, if we started to think about additive manufacturing, what additive manufacturing was actually enabling people to do was more or less small footprint localized manufacturing. So we were starting to see organizations like Nike sort of reshoring and, you know, nearshoring their production and so on and so forth. Within warehousing systems, we were finding increased autonomous systems being put in, collaborative robotics, for example, and the Internet of Things being embedded within a lot of those processes. So what we were starting to see was this change really gaining a bit of momentum. But actually what has actually happened with the pandemic is that all of a sudden that has created a massive burning platform for all these technologies. So we're already hearing of industries, you know, in terms of logistics companies and their back offices, you know, 25% improvements in the overall productivity because they're starting to sort of automate processes. Even over the last sort of nine to 10 weeks that we've been in this lockdown, they've had to find new ways of working. And so therefore, they've had to innovate in order to survive. So this burning platform is meaning 
that, you know, the technologies which were there and have been sort of moving forward over the last couple of years have received incredible focus in just the last 10 weeks. And organizations are suddenly starting to do things very differently and are looking at, you know, investing heavily in these sort of technologies so that they can do things different. And that is basically creating that when we come out of this, things will not go back to normal. And I think this is one of the most important things to think about. Things will not go back to normal. They will go to a new normal. Some of the things we've learned over the last sort of 10 weeks will mean that people will actually operate supply chains in very different ways. Richard, which of those technologies which you just described is most critical? And can you offer an example of an operation which is using it well? Well, if we're looking at autonomous systems and maybe collaborative robotics, we're already starting to see this within some warehousing environments. So what we're suddenly finding out is that that biological component of supply chains is actually the most vulnerable component at this time. So therefore, we've got to start thinking about, well, how can we run, for example, warehouses with maybe 20% less workforce? And the only way we're going to be able to do that is through thinking about robotics. So that is really creating massive focus in that particular area. I think autonomous systems as well within those environments is going to receive increased focus. And additive manufacturing, if you just think about in terms of, for example, personal protective equipment, PPE, additive manufacturing has been just utilised massively in the production of that. So people are suddenly understanding their capabilities within, if you like, the supply chain and the manufacturing environment. They might have been an organisation which was involved in making different products, but by understanding their core capabilities, what they've been able to do is to basically leverage that capability and use it for other products. And that is really exciting when you start to look at this. We're seeing a number of things at the moment occurring, you know, data analytics, the systems integration side also really coming into play, particularly for remote working. That's becoming increasingly important. And one of the strange side effects of remote working, just talking to one particular organization, is that we're actually finding that that is created increased collaboration within organizations. So if you think about pre-COVID, so going back to last year, for example, 2019, you'd have a factory, you'd have a morning meeting. At the morning meeting, you would generally have, you know, the people from that factory meeting up physically. One organization I've been talking to, what they've ended up doing is they said, well, we have our morning meetings at our factory, But actually now we can open those morning meetings up to other people across the supply chain. So now we're able to collaborate and coordinate the supply chain and coordinate our capacity far more effectively than we've ever been able to do. So from moving from that physical meeting to that virtual meeting has then improved collaboration and improved the overall effectiveness of their business processes. We're just having a small break from the interview with Richard Wilding because I want to tell you about an interview I did recently with Damien Alexander. Damien is Vice President and Managing Director of Lidos UK's Logistics Division in charge of the £6.7 billion Ministry of Defence contract which I mentioned earlier. 
you can read that by heading to www.shdlogistics.com. Damien made some interesting points about digital transformation and the digitization of processes at the MOD. He said previous systems were federated, so Lidos introduced a supply chain integration platform. This views different systems across procurement, supply, dynamic transportation management, and payment systems, really streamlining those processes. Whilst you're at shdlogistics.com, it would be worth your time to register for our newsletter, which you can find at the bottom of the homepage. You might also be interested in seeking out past podcasts that we've done with some leading voices in the logistics industry. Right now, back to the interview with Professor Wilding. At this point, I've just asked whether Richard is impressed with the collaboration he's seen across the supply chain during the COVID-19 outbreak. Here is what he said. Collaboration has been really key and yeah, it's been great to see. Some of that, of course, has been facilitated because the government has been able to relax competition law. And that's quite important because it enabled people to work together to be able to do things differently. But I think there's an awful lot of lessons that we can actually um, take from that in terms of managing relationships. During this time, you know, if I'm looking at supply chain risk management, I always say you've got to get the supply chain strategy right. You then need to think about designing your products and services for the supply chain. You've got to focus on agility. You've got to have a, if you like, a supply chain risk management culture. In other words, you need people asking when they make a decision, how will this impact the risk profile of the overall supply chain? But critically, collaboration, building relationships, managing relationships is really foundational, you could argue, to making sure that you've got a resilient supply chain. You then need supply chain transparency and continuous monitoring and intelligence. But why is collaboration so important? Because if you've got good relationships across the supply chain, it means that you're just far more resilient because competition, after all, is not between individual companies. It's between the supply chains they're part of. And actually, a nice little definition which I often use for supply chain management is supply chain management is all about the management of relationships with all stakeholders in order to be able to reduce cost and create value for the final customer. And that's reducing costs for the supply chain as a whole. And I think that that's really important because I think what has been brought into sharp focus is those businesses who know how to manage relationships have really done quite well during this pandemic time. They've been able to make sure they are managing relationships. And I use that word managing and want to emphasize it because if you're managing inventory, for example, you've got to have facilities to be able to manage inventory. You've got to have have people involved in managing inventory. You're going to have processes involved in managing inventory. When you're managing relationships, you need to put the same emphasis on this. You need people responsible for managing relationships. You might even have infrastructure and IT systems involved in managing relationships. You might even need a physical facility where you get people together to help manage relationships. But that becomes really important. 
And sadly, many businesses do not place any emphasis really on managing relationships. They treat a lot of their supply chain decisions as very much transactional. And I think in the future, we're going to see people thinking a lot more about building relationships across all the network of supply chain partners so that they can actually compete more effectively. Richard, I heard from Maureen O'Shea earlier from KPMG, and she said this isn't a time for operators to wait and see. This is a time for key moves with no regrets. What would you say the key moves with no regrets are right now for warehouse operators? I think some of the key things that you need to start thinking about is collaboration. We've already emphasised that. I think also that wherever possible, you need to start looking at automation, even in limited way. So it might be that you can't fully automate a facility, but can you use collaborative robotics, for example, and start experimenting with that? You know, uh, for example, you can get now for, uh, you know, £30,000 collaborative robots. At Cranfield, we've been working with some of the companies through our Agile Supply Chain Research Club who have started using those technologies they're actually finding they're getting a return on investment on that type of technology of around about nine to 10 months. You know, that's factoring in all their costs and so on and so forth. So there's some real opportunities here, but I totally agree. We can't sit back and wait and see. A new normal is coming about. And if we sit back and wait and see, we can't be part of that new normal. And unfortunately, that might mean that what we currently do becomes completely outdated too quickly. So making sure that people are sort of investing, experimenting, thinking ahead, that's going to be quite important with this. And also a thing that we must do is start thinking about our workforce and our individuals. What we're going to have to start doing is actually developing those individuals and thinking about potentially the new skill sets which are going to be required within the warehouse in the next few years, because things are going to change. And therefore, we need to start bringing that capability on and developing our people internally in all sorts of different ways, thinking about their leadership styles, for example, the technical skill set, the technical intelligence that they need, and also the relational skill set as well. How can we develop those skills amongst our whole organisation so we're prepared for the future? Thank you, Professor Wilding. I imagine, like me, you wrote down some of the very thought-provoking points that Richard made. I now have this picture in my head of these small warehouses with floors of steel connected to railway tracks with a mini nuclear plant in the top left-hand corner. Whether it happens that way or not by 2030, the point is existing power and infrastructure models will need to be updated. Wilding's final points there about the importance of developing people internally and his point earlier in the interview about the businesses that have performed well being the ones that know how to manage relationships shows that even though technology will define the new normal, so will good old-fashioned humans. So look after yours. Finally, thank you Professor Wilding for spending some time with us, virtually of course, and also a big thank you to Lidos UK for sponsoring this episode. You can also find my write-up of this interview with Wilding in the July-August issue of SHD Logistics. Visit www.shdlogistics.com for the digital version of the magazine. It includes comments, 
not featured in this podcast. Please do subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your platform of choice. By doing this, you help other logisticians find it. And I think that counts as collaboration. So please get involved. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you all for coming. Please stay safe and see you next time. Thank you.